The fairy faith is about traditional British shamanism and, of course, part of that tradition is the telling of our own mythology and our own folk tales. But we'll start with a little bit of philosophy. And this is a diagram that I find incredibly helpful when talking about the essential philosophy of shamanism, which is an animistic philosophy. And this is a, a very traditional idea called the Great Chain of Being, which says that at the, the heart of everything, at the centre of the universe in which we're living, is matter. That, you know, in the beginning there was a big bang, and from that we got the galaxies and the Earth and all the rest of it came out of that. And we're talking about a lump of rock swirling around and all of that material side of the world, and it's physics that looks at that. Um, but at a certain point, let's just go to our planet, you know, it started off as this material being, but at a certain point something radically different happened, and that was life. So, as opposed to there being lumps of rock and things happening to lumps of rock, there were actual living creatures, and living creatures have a very, very different level of their being. And so what we've got here is that life is studied by biology, but we've got matter which is A plus something else. Yeah? So we're talking about another level here, the great chain of being, another level. At a certain point again, and this is much argued about exactly where this point is, the life forms exhibit mind. And mind as a property is, is very distinct from life, just as life is very st distinct from pure matter. So we know that the chairs that we're sitting on are pure matter. They don't have a life of their own, or we hope that they don't. And whether or not they have a mind is totally questionable. If there was a cat wandering around this room, we would say it was distinct from a chair, that it definitely had life. And a lot of us would say it's got a mind of its own as well, because we live with cats and we know exactly how much of a mind they do have. But whether or not the, the earthworm or the amoeba has a mind of its own, people are going to argue about that. Yes? So we're talking about something that's, that's very distinct. And it's psychology that looks at that. And in, according to this great chain of being, for there to be mind, you need matter and life. Now, actually, I'm going to be arguing something slightly different from that, but we'll take that for the moment. And the next level in the great chain of being is what's called soul. Now, soul is dealt with with theology. And I have to admit that in my more recent work, I'm being ever so stupid and I'm starting to look at the realm of soul as well as the realm of mind. But I have essentially in my research been looking at mind and as a parapsychologist it's mind that is the essence of what we're looking at. However, if you take the word psyche, which is the word that's used in psychology and what you think of as pertaining to mind, actually one aspect of its definition pertains to soul. And I'm beginning to realize more and more that in parapsychology we're looking at soul as much as we're looking at mind. And this is quite an interesting one. But soul is considered to have something distinct from mind in that mind is quite often thought to die with the person, but soul is what carries on. And most theologists, you know, are going to argue this distinction. Um, and so soul is the something else. And the newborn baby is born with their own unique soul, 
and they have their own, a mind of their own, certainly when they're born, but they're actually a distinct thing in that the mind of the baby changes as it grows, grows through childhood, grows into adolescence, grows through adulthood, but the soul of that person, you know, you hold the newborn baby in your arms and then you see them again when they're 80-year-old grandmother or father and you recognise this is the same essential being. Yes, the soul is, is the same, although in terms of the mind, they've changed radically. So that's soul, and then in here, the next level up is mysticism, spirit. And that is sort of, oof, we're talking mysticism. Yes, we're talking ultimate when we get to, to, to spirit level. Now, you will notice that on this, I have actually written spirit outside of it all. Because when we look at an animistic philosophy, spirit is the ground of all being. And there is nothing which is not of spirit. So all of matter is actually of spirit. So in this great chain of being, spirit is the ultimate that one attains to, but you, the, the animistic sort of does a wormy robberus and, and turns it right back in on itself and says, well, but also spirit is the ground of all being and there's nothing which is not of spirit. And the animistic philosophy is what I would call the oldest human philosophy that we know about. So we don't really know the philosophies of the Paleolithic people who did the cave art. We don't really know the philosophies of the Neolithic people who built the stone circles. But we can have an idea because to this day, actually, although they're really now everywhere across the world is affected by the Western world, to this day there still are shamanic peoples. And the shamanic peoples live an animistic philosophy. And an animistic philosophy says that even the chair that we're sitting on has its own spirit that is the spirit of the chair, and the spirit of these chairs is that they're sort of mass-produced, they're all clones of each other, they don't have the particular character of their own, but we could, there isn't one in the room, but let's say there could be a beautiful hand-carved chair, the sort of thing that your granddad used to sit in, um, and this was handmade, and there's the beautiful wood, and the years that it's been used, and maybe this was a rocking chair, and you could remember that the day that your granddad died, the chair started to rock on its own accord. And yes, so there's a chair that's got a spirit in it that's very powerful, very strong. Whereas these chairs, you know, maybe so, uh, in the course of time they acquire more, but the animistic philosophy says that everything has its spirit. And it means that you live in the world in a different sort of way when you live the animistic way of life. When I talk about the fairy faith, I am talking about a faith, a belief system, a way of life, that is the traditional British animistic philosophy. I hesitate to call it a religion, I think it's a spirituality of philosophy. And I will use words that, that, that walk outside of the word religion because I, I, I see religion as being something slightly different from what I'm actually talking about. Because my understanding is that this way of life is actually re-emerging at this present time as a way of life, not as a set religion. And what I find very interesting in that it's the oldest 
and it's also coming back in now, is that if we look at human spirituality and the evolution of human spirituality, we, we can look at it and see that what's called the procession of the equinoxes marks major shift points in human spirituality. Now, at the moment, we're at what's called the dawning of the age of Aquarius. What this means is that in the next 200 years, the first of the Aquarian stars are going to be on the horizon at the spring equinox when the sun is rising. But we're actually 200 years before the first of the Aquarian stars is actually going to be on the horizon. So the age of Aquarius is where you've got Aquarius there on the horizon at the time of the rising of the sun at the spring equinox. But the dawning, yes, the dawning is actually a 200 year period. If you think of dawn from that first cock crow through to the first light, through to when the sun actually rises, that can take two hours. It can take more than two hours actually, but it can take two hours. Two hours in 24. Now, an age the age of Aries, the age of Pisces, the age of Aquarius, takes approximately 2,000 years. So we can think of 100 or 200 years as being a dawning, and we're talking about 2,000 years as being the whole thing. So this is where we're at now, we're at this dawning point, and I see human spirituality is going through a major shift. The shift that I see us going through is that for the first time ever, we have all of the world's great wisdom teachings available for all of us to become aware of. So we have got Taoism there, just on the bookshelves if we want it. Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, all the different varieties of Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, all of the hundreds of different Christian variations on a theme, and so on and so forth. People get into American Indian shamanism, they get into the Mayan religions, they get into Australian Aboriginal stuff, you know. It's all there, all there for us. And what I'm noticing is that Whereas the age of Pisces, 2,000 years ago, essentially started a little bit before that with the birth of Gautama Buddha and the beginning of Buddhism, then the birth of Jesus Christ and the beginning of Christianity, followed with Muhammad and his prophecies and his teaching and the beginning of Islam, these three major world religions, that was the age of Pisces. Yes, that's 2,000 years ago we're talking about. And it was a huge shift what we've got now, as far as I see, is not actually a particular guru or messiah or prophet or teacher, but is more sort of a grassroots thing where people are becoming aware of spirituality. We've gone through Nietzsche and God is dead. We've gone through the age of reason and the age of the enlightenment and all of agnosticism and atheism and not believing in God. And there's still quite a lot of people who are in there. And, you know, it's, they're just following a material philosophy. But there's, there's a huge desire for spirituality to become part and parcel of our, of our lives. And everybody is finding their own spirituality. So what I see happening with Aquarian spirituality is that we are individuals as part of a collective. So it's the world's collective philosophy and each individual making their own pot in that. 
That's what I see happening at the moment. And that's a shift I see. Now, it could be, you know, as we get to the sunrise of Aquarius, that something completely different happens. But in this time of transition, this chaos time of transition, this is what I see going on. A desperate yearning for spirituality, but groping. We don't quite know, you know. And in the West, we are very material. Very, very material. Things of matter are things that we feel we can trust, things we understand, things we believe in. And we find it quite hard to grasp spiritual concepts. So I must admit that in all of my teachings, I bring a lot of science in because I find that, that when something is somehow validated by science, people then go, ah, yes, ah, now I understand what you're talking about. So, today I'm going to be talking animism, and I'm going to, because I know the British, I know the Celtic, I know the Brythonic um, very well, I'm going to be talking about that aspect of animism, shamanism, but I'm also going to be talking about it with a whole load of science in there too. The essence of fairy. Because fairy is very much the traditional British. The essence of fairy is magic. And when we talk magic, I don't know how many of you ever thought about what magic is or what magic means. I guess most people, when they think of magic, they think of Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter. And I love the fact that these have become so popular because they're magic in its absolute essence. And we're talking psychic ability. A magician is somebody who can use psychic ability at will. That's what we're talking about there. They are people who can change material things at will using the mind alone. They're people who can see into the future. They're people who can know what's happening at a distance. Yes, this is the essence of magic. Now, traditionally in Britain, magic was taught by the fair folk. And the fair folk were the people who were here when the Celts first invaded. The Bronze Age, the Bronze Age Celts first came to Britain Around about 1000 BC, people keep changing dates, and I'm very bad at remembering dates, but let's say around about 1500 BC was when the, the Beaker folk first came. Maybe it was 1500 BC. And these were Celtic peoples. And the fairy folk were here already. And they were the people who built the megaliths, who built the stone circles, who built the long barrows, and they were felt to be magical. It was Merlin with his, his magic using sound that transported the stones from Fuseli to Stonehenge. Yes, that's one of the myths, for instance. And sound plays a lot when we're thinking of the magic of the fair folk. Now, this psychic ability, as I said, was traditionally connected with the fair folk and witches who were the traditional British shamans, the witches, the wizards, which wizard, let's look at this and the word magic and give it a slightly different connotation because a lot of people are very frightened of these words. If you take the, the root of the word magic, and one of the festivals of Christmas is when the three magi come and bring the gifts to the Christ child, and the other word for the three magi is the three wise men. 
Because magic comes from that same root word. It's an Arabic word, maghim. And the maghim are the three magi, and magic is of that same root. We're talking about wisdom, the wise ones, the wise women, the wise ards, the wizards. We're talking about wisdom, essentially. We're talking about that of the soul as opposed to that of the mind. Sciences of the mind, sciences of knowledge. But wisdom, magic, is of the soul. So we've got this link going on here. And if you go to the, the witch trials in Scotland and you read about the people who were burnt in Scotland for being witches, every single one of them said that they got their gifts by conversing with the fair folk. They either married the fair folk or, like Thomas the Rhymer, went to live in fairyland. So Thomas the Rhymer from the lowlands of Scotland, um, he, he went to live with the fairy queen in the Eildon Hills and he was away for seven years. And when he came back, he had the gift of prophecy. He could speak the future. And he was called True Thomas because every word that he spoke came true. He had knowledge of the future. And all the witch trials right across Scotland, every single witch had gained their arts, their knowledge, their gifts by converse with the fair folk. And in Scotland also, you have lots of different uh, people in the clans who actually married the fair folk. And so their, their lineage were people who had what was called second sight. The second sight nowadays is thought of as being able to see the future, those who prophesy when somebody's going to die or something like that. But originally the second sight came from being one who was acquainted with the fairies. And that's what it meant. It was that you could see the fairies, you could see the fair folk, you could move into that other world. So the essence here of, of ancient British shamanism is dealing with magic and with people who used to be called witches and wizards or cunning men was the other word for the wizard and wise woman was the other way of calling a witch. So, so we, we've got these, these different words that were in there and cunning just means one who's got great knowledge. And so here we have this, this ability to look into the future, this ability to be psychic, this ability to also work magic in terms of healing, the blessing of the crops. And when we think of our fear of the traditional British shamans, we think of it from around the 1600s, which is, of course, when Christianity has been around for, ooh, you know, seven, eight hundred years by that time. And all the churches, at least in Somerset, had been built around the 1300s. So, you know, been a big move to have Christianity right out into the country. And most people now are Christian, but there's been this anti-Inquisition thing. The Catholics have been thrown out. We're into the Puritan era. And there's still these old women in the villages with their knowledge, with their gifts. And there's a huge move to say, no, we're having nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with the, the papery and the, the popery, and nothing to do with all of that old magical stuff. And so we've got the negative, because not, if you can heal something, if you've got the gift of healing, you can also curse. It's a flip side. 
And if you look at research into psychic healing, you see that people who are able to do psychic healing are also able to do the opposite. And there's been research with people like Matthew Manning where he was asked to influence enzymes or red blood cells, you know, work at that level and asked to make the enzymes become more active or less active for the red blood cells to do this or to do that. And he could work it both ways with equal ease. Equal ease. And so somebody who's got that gift, somebody who's got that talent, somebody who's got that training is to be feared this fear, particularly when there's superstition, when there's ignorance, when there's a lack of knowledge. And the fear at one time was awe, because awe is fear, but awe is fear where you recognize the holy. And shamans were always held in awe for their gifts and respect, because respect comes with awe, but you didn't cross them. And if you look at tribal peoples who are shamanic to this day, the shamans are considered able to heal, and also if somebody gets sick, they believe that it's a shaman from another tribe who has sent a bad spirit, which is causing that person's sickness. To this day, those beliefs are held. That you don't get sick just because it's a bug, you get sick because there's a bad spirit attacking you. And the shaman's first job is to get rid of the bad spirit that has been sent by the other shaman of the other tribe. And to overcome it, do battle with it. They go into their outer body, their spirit body, and in the spirit body they do spirit travel and they do battle. Now we look at the traditional British, what was this outer body experience? It was witches supposedly flying on broomsticks. Now, when we look at this flying of the witches, their out-of-body, we discover that they were supposed to use an ointment that helped them to fly. And this ointment was composed of herbs that take you into what we would now call a psychedelic or hallucinogenic state of consciousness. Now, one of the key things in my research, this bit of paper that I'm holding, which I'm sure a lot of people will already have heard already, but just for the sake of completeness, I put it up here, the shamanic pineal link. You can all see that nice and clearly. The shamanic bit, this bit, actually comes from the Amazon region. And here, the shamans make a tea called ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is a tea that's made of a vine, Banisteriopsis carpi, combined with various herbs. The one I've got here is Nixipeikawa, but there's also Psychotria viridis, which is another, another very common herb. And what they do is they cut down the vine, they chop it into bits, they put it into a cauldron, they leave it to brew for three days, and they add herbs. And this is about as shamanic and traditional as you can possibly get. And the story I was going to end with talks about this cauldron with the herbs bubbling in order to take you into this other state of consciousness. So here we have them brewing up the herbs and the, and the vine. Now when we look at the chemicals that you get here, you get from this vine what are called the Hamala alkaloids. And from the herbs you get something called DMT, which is a very potent hallucinogen. Now the thing with DMT is that if you just take it normally, you ingest it, it actually gets broken down. It gets broken down and passes out the body and doesn't get assimilated.
But if you take it with the harmala alkaloids, it can get absorbed into the bloodstream, go through to the brain, and take you into a state of consciousness whereby you experience going out of your body into your spirit body, this whole experience of spirit flight, where you do what's called remote viewing or seeing something that's happening um, separate from you in another place or divination precognition where you go into the future see something happening in the future or in the case of healing encounter the spirit the bad spirit that's caused the sickness doing battle with the bad spirit or another thing that shamans will use ayahuasca for is if there's a problem in the village that can't be resolved and they'll take the ayahuasca in order to connect with the spirits for the purpose of guidance, of, of wisdom, counselling so that they can then come back and say this is what the spirits have said, this is the way we need to deal with this situation. Now what I find really intriguing is if you look at this chemical formula and pretend it's just a picture, what you see is we've got a six-sided crystal and another six-sided crystal joined by a five-sided crystal. Yes, and you've got these three crystals joined together. Now, over here, I show that we actually create an identical brew inside our own brains every night of our lives. The pineal gland, which if you take a line through the third eye, through the tips of the ears, is situated right in the center of the head right in the center, tiny, it makes something called pinoline. And pinoline, if you look at the picture, is identical with the harmala alkaloids. Yes, you've got the same picture going on here. Now what pinoline does is it interacts with serotonin, which is a very important neurochemical in the brain. This very important neurochemical, when it interacts with the pinoline, can't break down and be passed out of the system. So it's in a very unstable chemical state and it creates DMT. Now DMT, which you get in both ayahuasca and made by the pineal gland, is this really potent hallucinogen. And I suggest that we experience a DMT state of consciousness every night of our lives. And we call it dreaming. The dream state is the shamanic state par excellence. There is a very good psychic healer I know who considers she does her best work at night and she will put the list of people who want praying for, who want healing by her bed at night. She'll read their names, she'll think of them before she goes to sleep because she feels that at night she can readily go out of her body and do the distant healing to greatest effect and she's a very powerful healer so I think she's right. I also know from parapsychology that most people have their most profound psychic experiences at night time. So the experience of waking up at three in the morning and seeing a loved one at the foot of the bed and, you know, being totally puzzled why they're there, going back to sleep, waking in the morning and getting the phone call to say that they passed away peacefully in their sleep at three in the morning and it's like, ah, oh, you know, they came to visit me. That sort of profound experience. These experiences happen at night. Precognitive dreaming is the most common form of precognition. 64% of all precognitions occur in the dream state. People dream what is going to be happening to them. So this sleeping, dreaming state of consciousness is our natural shamanic state. 
where we can naturally go out of body, where we can naturally know what is happening in the future, know what is happening at a distance from us, connect with spirits of the dead. We are shamans, all of us. It is our birthright. However, we're not shamans at will or consciously. And that's the difference. That's the difference. Well, doing it unnaturally is a normal thing, and I'm sure that's where it came from, as the very first primary foundation of spirituality. And it's people who are more sensitive, people who've got this gift and can actually walk between the worlds whilst they're awake in full consciousness. And the difficulty is that you need to be trained to hold that state of consciousness so that you don't go over the edge and end up having what we would call a psychotic breakdown. And the, the neurochemicals, what's going on in the brain, is identical with the sleep state, the sleep and dream state, is identical with the shamanic psychedelic state and is the same as what is happening in a psychotic breakdown. So we've got these th four different aspects of being, all actually with the same basic neurochemistry underpinning them. Now, one of the things why I'm talking about this pineal gland thing, even though I'm sure most of you have heard it already, why I'm talking it is because one of the key things that affects the pineal gland is light, in that it's switched on by the dark, but it's also affected by the Earth's magnetic field. The Earth's magnetic field affects us profoundly. We are electric beings. You can actually rub the skin and, and feel the static electricity. If you comb your hair by a radio, you'll hear the radio crackling because of the static from the hair. Now, hair is what's called piezoelectric. Piezoelectric is what a crystal is. You squeeze a crystal and that crystal will then give an electric spark. Yes, it takes the pressure of you squeezing and turns it into, into electricity. It's like a lightning flash. Curlian photography, it's the same. If you hold your finger over a Curlian machine, you will see you have these lightning flashes going between your fingers and, and the, the, the Curlian machine. We are electric beings. We're profoundly affected by lightning, by the atmosphere of a storm. You go into a house and maybe you find the hairs on the back of your neck standing up. There's something about that house, you know, that, that affects you. It's got an atmosphere to it. We talk about this, the atmosphere of a place affecting us. And that is connected with this static electricity. And it's also connected with the Earth's magnetic field. The Earth is a giant bar magnet with a North Pole and a South Pole and a field going between them. And this field is constantly changing. And there are times when we get the northern lights and we have massive storm, magnetic storm happening. Now, when you get these really intense magnetic fields, what we found in parapsychology is that you get more cases of poltergeists, more cases of hauntings, more cases of um, psychic healing is, 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 is stronger. You get what I call the active psychic happening. 
And they've tested it not just in terms of people writing in about their psychic experiences, which is, is you know, case studies. They've also tested it in the laboratories. And people who've done a decade of research into psychic healing have then correlated their experiments and the days they were done with what the Earth's magnetic field was doing at that time. And they found when the magnetic field is stronger, then... That is when you get the strongest psychic healing effects. So our psychic ability is strongly affected by the Earth's magnetic field. The pineal gland is strongly affected by the Earth's magnetic field. The pineal gland, I got sent this lovely article just the other day. It has in it calcite crystals. The pineal gland is crystalline. It calcifies at puberty, which is the time when the nose calcifies. Yes, we get this bony nose. At the same time, the pineal calcifies. Carries on making all of its chemicals, but it now we get, we get a, a magnetic sense of direction. This occurs at puberty, and it's quite possibly connected with the pineal gland. Exquisitely sensitive to changes in magnetic field. And we are sensitive to changes in magnetic field not only at the physical level, not on a psychological level, they found that psychotic depression onset is related to these magnetic storms. So our mind and our emotions and our mood is affected by the Earth's magnetic <coughs> field, but psychically we're affected as well. So intense magnetic fields are connected with this magical, fairy, shamanic ability to, to see ghosts, to do psychic healing, poltergeists and so on. Also, when the magnetic field is lower than normal, decreases in intensity, we get more cases of clairvoyance and of telepathy, what I call the receptive psychic. Very interesting. Now, that's psychic phenomena for you in a nutshell. And the reason that I talked about that stuff is because we live in Britain, and I'm talking about the British shamanism, the fairy faith, and I'm now getting to the fairy bit. And I have got here a very nice chart done by Paul Devereux, bless him. Is that from where people are seeing, is that focused? Because from where I'm standing, that, that it isn't. Better? Better? More? Better still? That's okay? I thought, even though I was too close, I thought it was a bit... All our beautiful stone circles, 400 plus. There's a lot of stone circles in Britain. And what Paul Devereux, doing what was called the Dragon Project, found is that 90%, huge percentage, can't remember exactly how many, significant percentage, 90%, I think, are within a mile of a geological fault line. If you look at the faultings in Britain and you look at the stone circles in Britain, you can see that they, they match. Yeah? That's what we're talking about, a match going on here. Now, where you get a geological fault line, you get anomalous magnetic fields. When you walk into a stone circle, you feel the charge. They have an atmosphere. 
Stone circles are places where you get more intense magnetic fields. Sometimes the stones have been chosen specifically for their magnetic properties. So Carningley, the Hill of the Angels, where you get just nearby Pentry Fan, that's highly magnetic. The Rollwright stones have been measured and some of them are highly magnetic and so on and so forth. You get the stones that are magnetic and you get the place that is highly magnetic. Now what I've just told you, let's link it together. Place of intense magnetic field affects the pineal gland. Pineal gland takes us into the shamanic state of consciousness whereby we are more likely to have poltergeist type effects, in other words magic, yes, being able to move things just through the mind, where we're going to see visions, hauntings and apparitions, where we're going to be able to connect at that visionary level with spirits and beings and otherworldly things where healing can happen. These places are temples and they are also scientific laboratories for accentuating our psychic abilities. No wonder they're connected with witches and fairies. Uh, let's think of the Rollwright stones as a nice example. Yeah, how were the Rollwright stones made? There was this king and his men who were marching along to come and conquer England or whatever it was they were marching along to do and they meet an old witch. And the old witch says, ha, huh, I bet you can't see the town uh, in just three steps. And the king says, of course I can see the town in just three strides. What are you talking about, you stupid old woman? And he takes three strides and he can't see it because of the druid's barrow. He should have watched that when you meet an old woman on the road. And they put a task. So he gets turned to stone and his men become... The, the, the roll right stones and she turns herself into an elder tree now an elder tree is a tree of the fair folk and quite often when you get these stories they're connected both with witches and with the fair folk you've got this very as I started with this very strong connection between the two and they're places of magic they're places where magical things can happen because we go to those places and we are affected now, you knew this at one level, and I've now given you the science behind it. And it's like, ah, now I know why going to a stone circle is such a powerful experience. Now I understand the energy of the place. Yes, it's got an energy. It's got a magnetic energy. And that affects me because I am affected by magnetic things. It not only affects me at a physical level, but in affecting me at a physical level, it's affecting me at a psychological level. Affecting me at a psychological level, it's affecting me at a psychic level. Now, I think that we have this, and I call it soul food. It affects me at a soul level too. You know, tourism is the major industry in Britain these days, and what has become the biggest of the tourist industries has been the sacred sites in the last two decades. From just a few people going to these sacred sites, they're now going, well, Glastonbury Tour has thousands of people every day. Thousands of people every day. Now, Glastonbury Tour is a sacred site. It's not a stone circle, but it's what's called um, a surface intrusion. It's very iron-rich. Iron and magnetism are very strongly connected. 
because it's what's called a surface intrusion, you get anomalous magnetic fields around the whole of the Isle of Avalon because they're an anomaly sticking up. And so the Earth's magnetic field, it's a bit like a stone in a river, yes? It's banging along, you know, going nice and smooth, and it hits something, and it has to go around it. So you get these anomalous fields happening. The tor being iron-rich picks up all this magnetic stuff and intensifies it. And a lot of people see lights around the tor, and a lot of people have really powerful experiences there. And the reason is that we are sensitive to this atmosphere, and it shifts us into, into this otherworldly state of consciousness. Now, what I find really interesting is that connected with these stone circles, again and again and again, are long barrows. So, for instance, Stanton Drew, the long barrow connected with it is Stony Littleton. Now, that one I know. Avebury connected with it is, is um, West Kennet. Thank you. Um, you know, again and again and again you find this, that there's a long barrow connected. Now, what I find really intriguing here is that when you go into a long barrow, all electromagnetic radiation is cut out. There is no electromagnetic radiation in a log barrow. Now, do you remember what I said about the, uh, the pineal gland being sensitive to changes in the Earth's magnetic field and our psychic awareness being linked with the pineal gland and that when the, when the magnetic field is increased in intensity, we get one sort of psychic phenomena and when it's decreased in intensity, we get the clairvoyance, telepathy, that sort of psychic phenomena, the remote viewing, all of that stuff is connected with a decrease in intensity in magnetic field. That's what you get in the long barrows. We've got megalithic psychic science going on here. They've got the stone circles for doing the active psi, and they've got the long barrows for doing the receptive psi. Because you go into those places, and you, I've had this experience, you go into meditation, and you are in that state of consciousness whereby you can receive and become aware of. Now, I read somewhere, or I was told somewhere, and blow me down, but can I find the reference? No way. However, I pass it on as a nice bit of faux law that some archaeologists, in opening up one of these barrows, actually came across a circle of skeletons that were actually sitting around. And I think that these were people who were doing some sort of major initiation, maybe for out-of-body work. Now, Paul Devereux has done a lot of work suggesting that ley lines, which are associated with the barrows, are actually spirit lines for shamans and their out-of-body type experiences. And I, I recommend, if you want to do out-of-body work, to go and sit in a barrow. They are perfect for taking you into that state of consciousness whereby you leave your body and travel and see something at a distance from you. Absolutely perfect for it. So here we have places that are linked. I've got another of these nice little maps here. Not quite sure how I'm going to um, go straight into this one. Because the topic I'm going to deal with now is also associated quite strongly with the sacred places of this land.
and it's a very modern phenomenon which most people understand in a very different way from how I'm going to talk about it. I know, I know how I'm going to go. I'm going to get to it by poltergeists. If you think of poltergeist phenomena, yes, what is it that we normally think of? Pots and pans flying about the place, yeah, lots of disruption. We think of physical effects, physical phenomena that are caused by the psyche. Nowadays, people associate them with, let's say, an adolescent who's rather disturbed. And when that adolescent reaches puberty or whatever, then the phenomena stop. That's how we tend to think of it. But go back not so far, and when you think of poltergeist phenomena, it was actually attributed to what were called bogarts. Now, bogart is a brownie who's got pissed off with you. Every cottage and farm and croft had its brownie. A little pisky, spritey type being. And these little pisky sprites used to help around the house and help around the fields and in the garden and so on and so forth. And you must never thank them by giving them a good pair of clothes because then they disappear. But you've got to look after them. Lots of houses in the west coast of Scotland have a little stone outside the back door where you put the milk and the bread for the brownies, a thank you. And you always had to keep the hearth properly swept and the pail of water with the cloth over it. And if you didn't do this, then the brownies got really upset and that's when the poltergeist phenomena happened and they would turn the milk and the butter would go rancid and etc 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 yeah all the poltergeisty type effects now let's look at this type of magic where you've got physical things happening but the physical things are related to spirit are related to psyche so Quite a modern example of this is mediumistic phenomena. Mediumistic phenomena, you're sitting around the table and the medium has trumpets running and floating around in the air and music being made and a hand comes and touches you from ectoplasm and yes, all this, uh, all this sort of stuff that you associate with mediumistic phenomena. It's psychic and yet it's physical. Uh, we've got this same thing this same aspect of reality, where you've got the psychic interlinking with physical things happening. Now, this is happening today, because one of the key things about these phenomena is that whenever you try to examine them, whenever you try to get to grips with them, they always disappear. All the ectoplasm disappears. You never actually get to see a phantom figure made out of ectoplasm. You might photograph it, but then people will argue over the photographs forever and a day. The same with poltergeist phenomena. You can do a photograph of the chair that's turned upside down, but hey, it's only a chair turned upside down, you know. You can't actually see it. And people go to investigate, and the phenomena won't play, you know. It's thoroughly mischievous and thoroughly wicked, and it's impossible for investigators to actually get to grips with it. We've got the same sort of thing happening today. Most people think of it in nuts and bolts terms, but I'm going to suggest that it's from this same, what's called daemonic, D-A-E-M, of myth. That means, daemonic means reality of myth, the daemonic reality. It's a mythic reality. And this is the phenomena of UFOs. UFOs are what I call airy-fairy law. When we talk stone circles, Warminster's the big one here, and Barmouth is another big one, Cumbria's a big one, 
funnily enough, Milton Keynes isn't too bad. Yeah, Wincanton. Wincanton. <laughs> Got Wincanton down here. Now, this was actually done in, done in, in 1971. But what we have got here is on the, on, on the right, on the left, on the right, those are earthquake epicenters. Remember I was talking about geological fault lines? Yes, geological fault lines connected with the fair fault, connected with witches through the stone circles, magic places. When you've got a fault line, you've got these two bits of rock and you get them rubbing together, which is called a tremor. We very rarely have actual earthquakes here, but we get lots and lots of earth tremors. In fact, look how many we get. We actually get um, about 400 a year, approximately one a day. One a day. But they're localised in certain places. Yes? So you get, you get more tremors where the bigger the spot, the stronger the tremor. And you see that there are places where you get lots and lots of them and places where you get much fewer of them. So geological fault lines, Earth's magnetic field affecting us psychically in terms of poltergeist, haunting, vision type experiences. And if you put this map on top of this map, you will see that all the reports in 1971 of people seeing UFOs, which is primarily lights in the sky, actually map onto the earthquake epicenters. Now this, for me, is fascinating. We've just talked about the link with magic. We've just talked about the link with fairy, earth fairy. And now we've got airy fairy linking with this same phenomena. The Earth's magnetic field being intensified. And there's a lot of theory to say that when you get these Earth tremors, you get what's called exo-electron emission and you get Earth lights. This is the Earth lights hypothesis. And I'm taking it one step further. I'm saying you not only get the Earth lights, but that atmosphere, that energy affects us psychically so that we go into the shamanic state of consciousness whereby we walk between the worlds and we can connect with the beings of the other world. The alien intelligence that is not of this reality. The alien intelligence that is of the other reality that we used to call fairy and we're now calling UFO. UFO beings, the beings that people interact with when they see the lights in the sky, are not human. They're nothing to do with human. They don't have our concerns. Yes, they're of another order. They are alien to us. When people went to the stone circles or the barrows and they connected with the fair folk, the fair folk are not human. They are not of human. They are of an alien intelligence. I'll give you an idea of how different the intelligence of the fair folk is from us. They, the, in the traditional Celtic, a year and a day on this reality, this world, is equivalent to a night and a day in the fairy world. Okay, so one night and a day in the fairy world is a year here. So one of their years is 365 of ours. So let's say one of the fair folk lives to be a hundred. That's 36,500 of our years. So a lifetime for a fairy is back to Paleolithic for human. They're not of our world. Okay? I'd always remember that. That we're just like this to them. Just like this. Off. Flick of an eye. 
Think of a gnat. You know, you'll just do this to a gnat, won't you, if it's bugging you, yeah? Well, a gnat lives at most for three days. So one of our days is like 30 years for a gnat. Well, much less than a gnat to them. Much less than a gnat to them. Alien, of another intelligence. You can tell a changeling, because if you get an eggshell and you fill it with water, so you've broken an eggshell in half, you fill it with water and you put it on the fire to boil, the changeling will sit up and say, well, I've seen three forests grow up and die down, but I've never seen anyone boil water like that before. Now, that's from the fairy myths, and that tells you about the age. Three forests growing up and die down? We're talking tens of thousands of years here, yeah? So, we've got this alien intelligence. This alien intelligence that interacts with humans because fair folk have always interacted with humans, hence the legends in Scotland of people marrying them, or the witches who gained all their knowledge by converse with the fair folk, who do physical things, as in poltergeist-type phenomena and all the other things that fairies do, and yet who disappear without trace, and who leave behind conspiracy who leave behind people telling stories and not believing and maybe it was this and maybe it was that and I don't believe this and I think there's a cover-up. They're pisky, Robin Goodfellow, they're wicked, they're mischievous. They leave behind a tangle, always. So what we got with the UFO legends is our modern day. So when people say that people don't see fairies nowadays, I say rubbish, absolute rubbish. We do see fairies nowadays. This drawing at the top, this is from the 50s, and it was a farmer in France. This is actually his lavender field. And one of these UFOs landed, and these beings got out. Now look at those beings, and then look at these beings, and do you see the similarity? It's really interesting. When you get people drawing the traditional fair folk, you've got the big heads, you've got the slanty eyes, you've got the little spindly bodies. It's so similar. It is so similar that I'm not the only person to have commented on it. So this is now called the European hypothesis. Yes, that we have this similarity. Jack Vallée is one of the main exponents of it. Um, Carl Jung talked about the mythic, the mythological um, aspect of the UFO, the archetypal of what we've got going on in here. Now, the one I like about this picture is, if you look at the craft, see there's the, there's the entranceway. Now look at the shape of it. It is so like a tumulus has to be quite remarkable. And in my book, I've got this lovely drawing of a tumulus that's sort of been lifted up, and you can see the light, and you can see the people inside dancing. And if you think of traditional UFOs, you've got the same thing of this shape with the light and the figures inside the light, and identical form. It's the form that is the same. But nowadays, we say that they come from the heavens, we say that they come from the stars, Whereas we used to say that they came from the earth. 
Now, most people, when they see UFOs and UFO beings, see this form. And I'll give you some more just for the sheer fun of it, because I think they're so lovely. I particularly like this fellow. But then I rather love this fellow, too. And this fellow's pretty nice. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm in your way. Can you see? So I've just done this to accentuate the fact of the, the face and the eyes. Yes, this is the sort of the depiction. Yes, the mythological depiction that we've got in our culture at the moment of the greys. But look at that. I mean, it's, you know, you, you, can, you can transpose. Look, look, look at this. You can transpose one onto the other just so easily, can't you? Look at these. Yeah? They're so similar in form and shape. And although, although we have different feelings about these, if you look at the traditional fair folk tales, people were frightened. People are frightened of the greys. Yeah? They interfere, they meddle, they do things that we don't like. But we see them in technological terms. They're technological. But it's the same thing that's going on. There was the fear with the changelings and the abductions. And people used to put iron on the cradles in order to make sure the baby was safe and wasn't going to get whisked away. We've actually got a very similar thing going on. And I think that's fascinating because most people who have these experiences don't know the traditional tales. You know, they're having the experience because the experience is of the nature of our connection with this reality. Now, the other thing that I just want to bring out here is that the other sort of vision that is seen is what I call the Shining Ones. The Tuatha Da Danan, the Tulwith Teg. These are the tall, shining beings who people connected with divinity, the divinity aspect. And we still get that with the UFO as well, in that a lot of the UFO beings that are seen are silver space-suited, human-sized type beings, and they give wisdom. A Course in Miracles is an example, yes, that was supposedly channeled through from a UFO being. So we've got this other aspect in the UFO law, just as we have the other aspect in the fairy law.